Well, hello and welcome to the unofficial Unreal Engine podcast, where we talk about all things Unreal Engine and also AWS credit traps. We're your hosts. My name's Alex. And I'm Jacob. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome to another fantastic episode inside of the Light Twist Studio for those who are on YouTube. For those who are not, you can still <laughs> like, you can rate it, you can subscribe. Thanks for all our, our loyal listeners. And we got a special guest with us uh, once again in the studio, uh, none other than Vikas. Do you want to reintroduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, really great to be here. Um, I'm Vikas Reddy. I'm co-founder and uh, CEO of LightTwist. Um, so yeah, we build a, a, a software that lets you stream into a virtual studio like this one with uh, just an iPhone and webcam. So um, yeah, excited to host you guys in, this, in the studio here today. Yeah, we're excited to be back. Um, and also, just for anyone who's watching on YouTube and sees the beautiful visuals we have here, can we get something up on the screen share? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. I'll yeah. uh, share this up here. It's a very cool environment. So we were thinking that today, you know, we're kind of toward uh, the end of summer. This is technically season two. Things are a little bit strange with our timing because, like, you'd think season two would be starting properly in September. But we're just having a, a grand old time wrapping up our summer with <laughs> our second episode of season two. And I thought it would be kind of fun for us to um, go off the beaten path a little bit about all the wonderful things we have to say about Unreal Engine and talk a little bit in this episode about, you know, not necessarily just frustrations or, or things that are uh, giving us headaches, but just general challenges. You know, I, I talk to a lot of developers who say like, oh, Alex, you make it all look so easy. How do you do it? And I think it's important for everyone to know uh, just how many hurdles all of us have to jump through to be able to get uh, any kind of cutting edge software, not just Unreal, do the things we want. So we thought because it'd be an excellent guest to have as we just kind of talk a little little bit about pipelines, hurdles, overcoming adversity, um, things like that. So yeah, yeah so Jacob, if, if anything, how's that sound? Well, if, if anything breaks in the studio today, we'll have something to talk about. <laughs> that's yeah, cool. that's true. We can troubleshoot it in real time. <laughs> that is true. Well, I, I think that's a great idea. I, there's always a dark side to, to all development and, and certainly uh, Unreal. Yeah, Unreal never crashes. I don't know if you've heard never. of that. Not even once. <laughs> Not a single time. Man. Oh, I'll start off with that because I want us to give tips while we're chatting here, too. Um, when you install Unreal Engine in the Epic Games launcher, make sure you hit a little checkbox, which is going to like quadruple the size of your Unreal Engine installation. But it's something like install with uh, engine source or something like that. And what that's going to do is make it so that when Unreal Engine crashes, it's going to give way more information about what caused the crash. And then if you, you know, Google that or ask ChatGPT or uh, share it in forums, it's going to be much, much easier to get to the root of what is causing a crash. So there we go. We'll start right off with a tip for dealing yeah. with the nice. inevitable crashes that happen. What are your favorite crashes, Alex? No, uh, <laughs> I, I am. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about in previous episodes, particularly with the kind of stuff that you do, Alex, in AR VR, is always you. You tend to do a lot with broken features. Um, <laughs> give us like the highlight reel of, uh, you know, what sort of things are still broken in in the AR VR platforms in Unreal. Like, what's been the most frustrating? issues to, to work with in the past few versions or, or since 5.0? Yeah, I mean, it's 
it's tricky because I'm the kind of person who falls in love so quickly with the bleeding edge of what's possible and that potential. And I remember the first time I saw the, you know, the video of um, uh, Echo in the Land of Nanite or whatever it was called, Lumen in the Land of Nanite, and thinking about the possibilities that all that represented, in particular for VR, which often struggles so much with maintaining frame rate and, you know, dealing with draw calls. And that was such a hurdle for me beginning as a developer in this world because I didn't train in game development or anything like that. I was an architect. I understood how to make multi-billion polygon models, and that was all fantastic. Uh, but to optimize them and get them to run well in a platform like Unreal Engine was very much a challenge. So the, the possibility of having fewer technical hurdles in the way and the idea that people could just be more creative was very exciting to me. Um, but that being said, Lumen, Nanite, a few other features, virtual shadow maps, um, things like chaos physics have been a little bit slower to stabilize and uh, particularly become useful in things like VR than, let's say, than I'd like. So I'm the kind of person who keeps trying to tell people like, hey, this is almost ready, almost stable. Please test it out. Please, you know, certainly when you have crashes, like share that with Epic Games because they do read those crash reports and it is helpful. But I always feel bad when I tell someone like something is ready for prime time or it seems stable. And then they come back and say like, actually, no, it's it's completely not. And we need to go back and stay in something like uh, Unreal Engine 4.27. I do think 5.3 is a really major step in a lot of these directions now that we have um, instant stereo working uh, working in a you know pretty robust way. I'd like I'm still getting crashes, and we're still in a preview release of 5.3, but it feels very promising for just being able to hit better frame rates um, and start to use things like Lumen and Nanite in a really meaningful way um, in the crazy world of VR, where you're trying to hit 90 frames a second, a left eye, a right eye, maybe a third view if you have a spectator camera. And uh, I've got a pretty cool demo that I, I plan on just kind of releasing to the public that hopefully becomes a nice showcase of uh, all these features doing their best. <laughs> and if everyone says, oh, it just crashed when I opened it, well, that'll be educational too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I want to pass this over to Vikas now. So, you know, you give us some background on how long you've been developing the platform we're currently using. Yeah. And maybe jump into, the, you know, what's been the biggest hurdles in dealing with Unreal and like, what, yeah, I mean, what's the latest? We've, had, we've had a, yeah, it's a good, it's a, it's a, it's been a bit of a journey since we started off. Uh, it's, um, we started off actually more as a um, iPhone app. So, you know, we were kind of exploring this whole, Hey, let's try to like make the uh, something like what you know what they did with the Mandalorian possible on the iPhone, and so we were exploring this whole space of like um, having a tracked camera on the iPhone, and kind of uh, um, we we actually created this whole workflow initially where we uh, had a local rendering on the iOS uh, device using uh, I guess we were using Scene Kit, I suppose, or ah. Reality Kit, uh, but with like sort of a so we had this initial challenge of like taking Unreal Engine environments and being like, how do we make this run on iPhone? Like, how do we crunch mm -hmm. it down? So we had a little bit of that. And then we had this whole thing of like translating uh, AR kit poses into Unreal in the, in the right way. So that was some of the initial stuff. But um, yeah, you know, we even, uh, you know, with the, you know, I think, I'd say about a year ago, we leaned into this idea of like, let's, let's build this, uh, let's focus on like delivering this like virtual studio for people. Um, YouTube creators, like people that are even creating like TV shows and, and different uh, different experiences, and um, I'd say some of the some of the challenges. Actually, one of the biggest ones has been what is the best way to bring 
real-time audio and video into Unreal and like replay it in a way that um, is performance, like uh, works well and has like good audio visual sync. Um, and honestly, I wouldn't even say we've like 100% solved that yet, but we ended up, um, you know, we tried all the different, uh, there's a couple different sort of NDI based plugins that we started out with that we were, we were testing out. But um, interestingly, one little quirk that we discovered is that a lot of the NDI stuff is, it, it has this strong assumption that you're feeding video in um, locally. So like on a local network. Yeah. Um, and so for, and pe for people that aren't familiar, NDI is kind of this, uh, it's this video transport protocol. It's like a lossless format, um, you know, does like audio, video, and they have like other sort of metadata you can do. Um, and it's often used in like virtual production sets um, and other contexts where um, typically you have a lot of stuff locally. And so you have like no very low latency, like no like network issues. Um, in our case, since we're trying to bring, you know, multiple people like we're doing here into the same environment, it was really, uh, it just ended up not being a good fit. Not, you know, not no knock on the developers of NDI. It's just that they never built it for this type of purpose. And so um, we ended up having to build our own plugin in Unreal um, to receive um, audio and video data um, and um, getting it all to, to sync and, and work properly was, was definitely a challenge there. Um, and one of the things that was a pretty big pain that we've like kind of figured out some strategy around is, uh, as you guys have probably seen too, is like building plugins for Unreal, the iteration cycles when you're doing development are super, super painful sometimes. Cause you're like, you've got to run the whole engine. You've got to like, you're kind of testing all this stuff. And then in development, there's like cases where just things crash randomly. It's, it's almost different than when you're like running the engine in production, it's like much more stable, but, um, in the development workflow, it's, it's, it can be a pain. And so like, we ended up having to, we ended up, uh, Gustavo, my co-founder actually just recently, um, did a pretty cool change, which is to kind of well, actually, we've done this in a couple cases where we, instead of just trying to build everything, uh, within the unreal context, we, we actually did it via DLLs. Um, mm -hmm. and this might be something that's pretty common knowledge with people that are like, you know, hardcore unreal developers, but for us, we were just learning, um, it was, uh, a good strategy to speed up those iteration cycles. So we could basically build like build a plugin, um, where it had a, a bunch of headers, uh, a bunch of functionality, and then, uh, it would, um, we could, we could actually test it completely outside of unreal engine and as almost like unit test it, um, and then bring it back into unreal, like, and, and ship it sort of part of that, part of that workflow. So, um, that's like one of, I'll, I'll, I'll think of some more, but that's probably one of like 10,000 random things that we figured out and effed up over time. <laughs> so, so where did you end up with like, uh, <clears throat> the, the protocol you're using for transport now? Did you ditch NDI and, uh, presumably you had to, but, um, well, how so, are you streaming things today? Yeah, we actually, so the, so the way we've done it is we actually ended up doing something where we, we, we have, uh, we're still using NDI, but we ended up building our own custom, essentially, player within Unreal. So it's actually like, because we, we found it to be convenient to, um, so right now we're, we're, we offload the computer vision processing. So like the segmentation or green screen that's running on all three of us right now, I guess in your case, Jacob, just, you know, sort of automatic segmentation, no green screen. Me and Alex are rocking mm -hmm. a, a like kind of crappy green screen here. Um, and then, um, 
what we're doing is we're, we're processing that uh, first on a totally separate machine and then um, transporting it in within an internal network uh, via NDI to our render servers, which are running Windows, running on Real Engine, have a, have a nicer GPU for, uh, for rendering. So we used it internally, but we had to do a bunch of work to get the audio and video to play uh, in sync on the server side um, gotcha. when it was received over this, like over the network, essentially, um, which was really interesting. It was one of the weird things that um, we found out too is that even just the built-in sort of NDI player from uh, uh, the, I forget, I forget, it's called like Intertech. I forget the company name <laughs> for NDI, but um, that they built was like, it. if you try to play stuff over like a, like a remote network where there's like maybe different network conditions, it even the test uh, player doesn't play stuff in sync for audio and video. So we couldn't even use that to like test, which was super, super challenging. Um, but, um, but yeah, that was like one of the, one of the many, uh, many things that we had to had to tackle there. Yeah. So, what about is from the? Company, the oh, sorry. Sorry. Is the company New Tech? Is that New right? Tech? That's right. That's right. New Tech. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yep. Go ahead, Jacob. Uh, I was going to ask. So, from the browser up to cloud, <clears throat> what what is that then? Yeah. So there, we're using. Uh, it's it's basically using uh, WebRTC. So okay. um, we're using like an there's an open source framework called uh, LiveKit that lets you essentially. Um, it's it's kind of a nicer a nicer interface on top of just the core like WebRTC essentially, which is which is maintained by Google, um, and it's uh, so it's that's that's essentially letting our video uh, stream you know our video streams stream up to our server side. So right. and then on our server we're pulling those feeds and then processing them, um, and then uh, yeah that's that's part of that uh, that framework too. And we in fact there we actually started out with something more where we were just streaming directly to our computer vision servers via TCP. But um, that when you when you don't have great network, that causes a whole bunch of issues. It's like it's lossless. It tries to it, it just like backs up over time. And so um, that change was like a relatively significant one. But um, that was that was separate from Unreal Engine itself, I suppose. But uh, it required a lot of uh, under the hood changes. Um, and then, the other, you know, another another just thing that comes to mind with Unreal is like We've had a lot of discoveries in like, you know, the a lot of the sort of built-in, or even the assets on the asset store, um, they're not made to be compatible with. Essentially, they're not really, they're not really, uh, they were never really made initially to be compatible with like Lumen and Nanite and right. um, Lumen especially. And so we ended up having to go in and kind of um, tweak the materials, tweak the lighting a bit. Um, Honestly, not as hard as I, you know, as the, some aspects of it was 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 not as hard. But um, we're also starting to like poke into like using some of the materials in the material library from um, Quixel as well to try to like make the materials a little bit better. But yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a challenge sometimes to try to get it to get it to look a little bit more realistic um, in uh, in Unreal for sure. So would something like this studio be an example of that? Or yeah, how did this look out of the box versus the modifications you had to make to it? Yeah, like a lot of it's just, a lot of it was like undoing some of the hacks that were put into the studio uh, initially by uh, by who built, you know, whoever built this for like Unreal 4.27 likely. And, um, you know, when you import it into Unreal, there's a bunch of like on the, you know, the post, the post-process volume, there's a bunch of like 
exposure, direct exposure controls or kind of like bracketing. Um, so there's like an auto exposure and stuff. And it's, it was likely super useful on Unreal 4, you know, 427, but with like the nice like global inflammation with, with Lumen, it like, um, it actually kind of like made it way too dark. It was like, it was like a weird yeah. setup essentially. In fact, if you compare this to our previous episode, there's, you'll see a difference cause I just tweaked that. <laughs> I like yeah. undid that change. Um, or I, I, I undid that sort of, uh, hack in there. Um, and so there's some stuff like that, but there's still some stuff that, you know, I think there's some materials and, um, different things that, um, you know, we're just trying to, we're just trying to figure out. And that, I'd say that's in general, one of the tricky things with unreal that you guys are probably seeing too, is like, there's so many different knobs to try. It's almost like this crazy parameter space of like, um, you have to kind of learn what, at least for, you know, at least for myself, who's a relative novice, I had to spend a bunch of time, like learning what knobs to even try, um, to even like try to be like, okay, here's, here's all the things. Um, and that's, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff in like, what type of anti-aliasing should you use? Like what, you know, yeah. what are the different render settings you have access to? Um, but yeah, I don't know if you guys have seen that too, but that was, that's one of the, the biggest like learning curves I've had is like knowing what I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I see people in particular when it comes to using uh, third party plugins, a good example being something like NVIDIA DLSS, not knowing what things they need to adjust in the default Unreal Engine settings to really use that in a meaningful way. Uh, for example, temporal super resolution kind of competes with some of the things that DLS does. So, you know, it's important to know how to uh, set that up correctly. Uh, similarly, because I'm curious what plugins you're using out of the box with Unreal versus things that you have to develop on your own. So like based on what you're saying, I could imagine, you know, WebRTC, maybe you're using the pixel streaming plugin, maybe you're using the remote control plugin, uh, maybe with your earlier development, the virtual camera plugin might've been important mm -hmm. there. I'm curious if any of that ends up being useful or if it's something where you like start with it and then you turn it off and you develop something more on your own. Cause people yeah. ask me all the time, like, where are there like templates and good starting points in Unreal Engine and then in, in, in the marketplace? And in which places do you really just have to like blaze your own trail? Just do it. Yeah. Yeah. On, on the plugin side, like, yeah, we, you know, there's, there's a couple that, uh, like some of the ones that are built into Unreal were actually super useful for us initially. So we have like, uh, we use the, we use the remote control API initially to kind of like instrument the studio. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, it was really useful to kind of get up and running because we kind of, we got an initial version of like this this cloud version of Light Twist up and running. Uh, and when I say we, I mean it was mostly Gustavo, my co-founder, um, <laughs> got it up and running in like about a month, like an initial very you know hacked up version. And um, a lot of the built-in stuff was super useful to just kind of get it get it up and running and working. Um, and then we did end up, we did actually end up swapping out most of the plugins. Um, so we the remote control plugin we actually swapped out for a. We built our own sort of uh, reflection API, um, sort of a lower yeah. level like socket thing that we might even consider open sourcing. Maybe we'll uh, apply for an Unreal Engine uh, Epic Mega Grand or something for. Um, but um, there's a there's a little because uh, because uh, we found that the remote control API was just it was relatively painful to do certain things um, via that that API. Um, and then we ended up um, we used uh, Owl like the Offworld Live plugin for streaming out via NDI, but then we ended up swapping that out for our own, um, just our own thing that just grabs the grabs the video feed and, and, and outputs. Because we, we were just using a small part of the overall like off-world live functionality. 
Um, and then, yeah, we are still using remote, the uh, live, uh, sorry, I think you, I forget, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it. The thing that lets you uh, see it um, live stream, essentially. Um, live link? Live, live link. Uh, or not, no, not live link. Uh, it's literally the, for streaming? Yeah, for streaming, it's called um, pixel wow, streaming. Pixel, or... pixel streaming. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <That> uh, <laughs> exactly. So we're we're using it now, but we found like you know that. So that's that's been so the 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 sort of preview. Um, maybe I'll, I'll maybe I'll do a little screen recording so some people watching the podcast can see this too. But essentially, the pixel streaming um, is is what we're using to kind of power the preview in in Light Twist, where you can see kind of a preview of like what the what the recording is going to look like, but we might end up swapping that out for just, just using with the, the existing WebRTC like session we have already. So, cause we found some mm -hmm. issues there at, at, you know, as we uh, like where it kind of stutters or has some, some random issues here and there. But um, um, yeah, overall, like I'd say like the plugin ecosystem was awesome to get started, but like, yeah, it's pretty, at least in our specific case, we ended up swapping almost all the plugins we were based on um, just mm -hmm. to kind of get our own customized functionality. And what version of Unreal Engine is this all running in right now? So we got it on, uh, it's on uh, Unreal 5.2. Uh, okay, well, 5.2.1, I guess, specifically. One, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, we're, you know, we, I think we will probably, you know, we, we kind of have it set up now where it's relatively easy to, you know, if, if Unreal comes out with a new 5.3, you know, when, when they ship 5.3 to production, um, we should be able to upgrade to that relatively easily. But that's actually one big advantage i would say to, to not relying on too many plugins is like when you get when you are relying on a bunch of plugins you're kind of bound by the lowest common denominator of like whatever plugin version you're you're based on so you're like well i would love to upgrade but like off world live hasn't upgraded to 5.3 yet or the remote control api doesn't support you know 5.3 so i think there's some that's i think there's this kind of plugin hell that i'm sure people get into in terms of like trying to upgrade yeah, yeah I, and for, oh, go, sorry, ahead, go ahead. No, 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 no. You, you, you <laughs> first. I was just gonna say that um, even for people who are not talented C plus plus developers who are going like very low level with everything in Unreal Engine source code, um, it is worth testing to see if a plugin that you particularly care about is going to upgrade in a relatively straightforward way. And there's basically two steps of that. One is literally just try dropping your, let's say, 5.2 plugin in 5.3 and see if it opens. It might give you a little warning that says, hey, this plugin uh, says it was designed for 5.2. Do you want to try to open it anyway? And you say yes. That warning, by the way, can be turned off just by changing one line in the .u plugin uh, file, which is something you can open up in like Notepad or you know Visual Studio or whatever. Um, but then, uh, even if it doesn't compile at that point, then the next step is basically just try opening it in a project that has C++. And the simplest hmm. thing to do is you can literally just start a new C++ project, like literally open up Unreal Engine 5.3 in this example, do a blank project, and there's an option there for Blueprint or C++. And I usually have a project in every engine version that I just call Plugin Upgrader. <laughs> and it's <laughs> literally just a place where I drop plugins that I want to see if they're going to cleanly upgrade. And sometimes they do. Like uh, DLSS 5.2 right now, they, they just released uh, DLS, this is going to sound so confusing. They, NVIDIA just released DLSS 3.5 uh, for Unreal Engine 5.2. And yet, 
if you actually try to do just a simple straightforward upgrade from 5.2 to 5.3 with that, it will work. Some of the other plugins won't do it, like Streamline, but you know, if all you need is the kind of out of the box vanilla DLSS, great, you can start using that in 5.3 right away and you know, maybe uh, get some of your frames back. Um, but then the other thing you might find too, like I do not consider myself a C++ developer at all. Uh, back when I was working in Unity a lot more, I got to know C Sharp pretty well, but that's actually pretty different I found from C++. But if you try to compile your project and try to upgrade your plugin and it doesn't, it fails, um, in Visual Studio, it might actually give you an error that is maybe plain language enough that you actually can see like the exact line where you might need to go and change something. Um, yeah. I'd say that happens to me maybe 20% of the time where like I actually can edit the code in such a way where it's going to upgrade okay. Um, and then, yeah, and then there's, of course, people you can hire who are going to do a much better job at this. Yeah. Um, what does that process look like for you, Vikas? Like, I mean, right now, like that's, yeah, like uh, I was going to say like in that, in that case where you do hit those... Uh, if those compile uh, errors, even if it's a little bit uh, advanced, I would highly, highly recommend uh, like using ChatGPT to like sure. just like plug it in and be like, how would I fix this error? Because honestly, there's been a couple of cases where I've done that myself where it's like, okay, I don't want to like incur all like looking at a bunch of documentation on this. Let me just like paste this into ChatGPT. And um, especially for stuff where it's like relatively esoteric, like language specific stuff. Um, I've done that with Rust and you know, other languages, uh, C++ too. But um, yeah, like, like in the, in the light twist case where, yeah, we, a lot of our code um, is in C++ uh, or like the, the parts that interact with Unreal Engine are in C++ and then are, some of our DLLs are actually built in. Um, uh, well, I, I guess, yeah, I guess our DLLs also are built in, in C++, the ones that work with Unreal. But the rest of our back end is mostly written in Rust. So it's we we have enough like programming ability to kind of just like, you know, like like go in there and kind of edit edit the things that we need to do to kind of upgrade to the to the latest engine for our own plugin. Um mm -hmm. but yeah, we still hit the, you know, I think at least historically, until we started swapping out some of these plugins for our, our own code, we were still hitting these uh these limitations. Um and I would say like there's definitely a lot of stuff like it's been helpful um, uh, to, you know, to basically be able to tap into the knowledge of uh, people on the team that have more deep Unreal Engine specific knowledge. Um, yeah. And so that's because that's there's a lot of stuff that's not really it's not like a general programming thing. So it's like, even though I would consider myself a, you know, generally good software engineer, um, there's a lot of Unreal Engine specific knowledge. And so I think it's actually an interesting opportunity in like for people that un understand Unreal really well and uh, can do a bit of coding or even like like you said, just fix up some some minor stuff, you can do some stuff that like a lot of people in the world can't do because they don't have that deep <laughs> deep knowledge and uh, or or the or the wherewithal to like deal with all the Unreal Engine quirks. Um, so, and I actually had a question for you guys. Like, I you know again, this is coming from a, a relative novice, but I find that some stuff in the unreal engine editor is is super easy just works but some stuff is just like a effing nightmare like i just like <laughs> i'm just like it makes me feel like doing some things that are that seem like they should be basic i'm just like i am a f like i'm a i'm an idiot like i i forget are we allowed to swear on this podcast <laughs> uh, you can, but then we just have to mark the podcast as explicit. <laughs> oh yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, I, I, I've sworn on every episode. So. <laughs> okay, okay. 
Okay, great. I was going to say, like, yeah, there's so many parts of Unreal Engine Editor that make me feel like a fucking idiot, where I'm just like, yeah. I swear to God, this worked yesterday. Why won't you fucking work? Um, mm -hmm. Especially around, like, movie render queue, or, like, <laughs> yep. um, like, I'm having this thing now where I'm trying to render... I, I like did this like uh, I've been testing out audio to face uh, with like a metahuman and it looks Excellent. really cool in the editor and it looks awesome when it in the preview for the render thing but when it outputs for some freaking reason it's out of focus or <laughs> and then it took me forever to actually like figure out like how do I change the parameters on this? How do I like was it, change the render uh, settings? Real quick yeah. on that, because yeah. in the past when I've seen that error, uh, yeah. for a lot of people it ends up being, if they're not in like a cinematic mode, if they're in like medium or even high sometimes, you don't get depth of field, so you don't see the actual like out of focus problems until it's exported. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, that, that could be, yeah, that actually could be could be exactly it. That might be, maybe I should go back and, and check that right now. But I swear I, I had it selected in the editor as like, cinematic mode and then uh yeah it's like this is the kind of stuff where you're like you're like well now did i or did i not because uh some of the stuff is so intricate where you're like you got to remember to do x y and z uh and if you're subtly off by like one thing it's like your whole thing is up is like fucked. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. so much of that. <laughs> I, I get the feeling that is it's you know like with the unreal editor just has a ton of surface area and it keeps growing but yeah I, I, I mean, I remember when I was doing just a lot in blueprints, like there, there are always, uh, you know, so many different ways for that to go wrong. And, and part I remember when they were first really kind of bulking up sequencer, for example, and like being able to for, like create a blueprint where you're accepting each frame in or, or keyframe in sequencer as an event. And then you're trying to like, update uh, objects with you know <laughs> values off of the timelines and and there were like three different check boxes you had to hit in the right place i don't even remember at this point but yeah there were like check boxes all over the place that you had to hit to make that work properly otherwise it would just spaz out or do something completely random where it'd be like all right i'll animate that first frame and then the rest i'm going to do nothing you know and i'm sure alex at this point is laughing to himself like oh i know that checkbox <laughs> but like yeah, I, I, I understand the same frustration, especially if you don't spend as much time in the editor. Yeah. Um, like, you know, from my perspective, I, I don't get to spend a whole lot of time inside of Unreal these days, which is always upsetting to me uh, because when I do get a chance to jump in, it's this exact stuff that, that upsets me where it's like, oh, man, I, I wanted to just try out this new feature and I got stuck on this, like, one little implementation, you know, detail that I couldn't <laughs> quite just look past you know and so i i totally get that frustration I, I i did want to mention something real quick actually about what you were saying before with plugins though um just as a, a general comment on, on unreal's plugin ecosystem like this this is one of the places that unity has historically done a lot better because of the c-sharp interface right yeah um because that's a nice middle ground for a lot of developers and um obviously not to comment on you know the quality or you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the scripting, you know, uh, um, ability of C sharp or like that whole ecosystem. Cause I, I hate.net and everything, you know, around it. Um, but like C sharp itself is just a lot more accessible than C plus uh, for most folks and being able to work with that in a, you know, a, a virtualized runtime where you don't have to compile the whole engine and you can develop quickly and all that, like that's super valuable. 
And um, that's been one of the big arguments for why Unreal needs a, a, a similar scripting system. Um, thinking about, you know, Python is in, is in the editor and Python, you can do non-runtime things. Um, so that's nice for, you know, when you're trying to just script things inside of working, you know, for working in the editor or you're trying yeah. to create tools, but it's not the same thing as, you know, a, a plugin, like a C-sharp plugin in Unity. Um, but maybe that's what we're going to get with, uh, you know, what, what we're seeing in UEFN and um, what's it called? Um, Verse. Verse, right? I think that's part of the concept is that maybe at some point we do have a, a scripting language more like verse that, you know, improves the overall, you know, usability and, and development environment around things yeah. like plugins and, and content plugins and stuff like that. I mean, the whole marketplace itself needs a big boost. And, and certainly, um, you know, I, that's something that we're going to see continue to mature, I'm sure, with, uh, you know, everything come around about what they're doing with mega scans and their other acquisitions. Like we're going to see, I, I think a lot of improvement there, but yeah, my hope is that it, it would improve to the point where developing plugins is, is easier. Um, and it's, you're not either just doing blueprint plugins, which honestly most of the time suck. Um, <laughs> doesn't give you like most of the time, the only reason you would develop a plugin is for is having access to those lower level interfaces or to do, you know, more runtime scripting. Um, so like, I don't know, that, that's, that's my take, but going back to what you're saying about the editor. Yeah. I, I, I want to make sure we continue that conversation in, in this. Yeah. Episode. Yeah. I yeah, find I wonder, it to work with unreal. Uh, like I wonder that. if there's something, I wonder if like some point somebody's going to build like uh, maybe, maybe unreal themselves. Like I saw somebody for blender, there's like a fork that's trying to build like a nicer, like a nicer UI, like a, like a better UX, essentially, like built on the same code base, but sort of, uh, you know, with different uh, maybe UX goals. So they're trying to, they're, they're going for like, what's, how do we simplify a lot of the, like most common workflows? Um, and that's like twin motion, right? Like, I mean, twin motion is a view on Unreal Engine true. from the perspective mm -hmm. of AEC, right? Like, yeah. And I think there's other industries you could do that for you know, for sure. Um, but I, I'm not sure the solution is like a simpler editor to, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably, it's probably, it's fair. I guess in some sense, yeah, you probably end up building like uh, higher level tools that are kind of like, yeah, like workflow specific rather than uh, yeah. Cause I, I guess like, yeah. yeah, to their, to their credit, like it's probably like, you know, what they've done at least is that at least most stuff is accessible through the editor even if it's a super, super pain in the ass to get to it or it's buggy, it's still there. And so you can do all that without doing any code really, um, especially with, via blueprints. And so that's, that's actually pretty nice. But yeah, I think that's, I think that's the, I think that's what will end up happening is probably, I mean, in some ways that's what we're doing with Twist is we're kind of building, not, not like a, exactly a, the same type of UI, but it's like, let's take the specific sort of very narrow subset of what, um, Unreal Engine can do and kind of make a nicer UX around it and just make it, you know, integrate it, like vertically integrate it with a bunch of stuff. Um, and yeah, like you said, Tune Motion is a good example. Um, and there's a bunch of other tools that are kind of like that, like Xsymmetry is another one. 
Um, yeah, I, I just think it needs to have some sort of focus to, uh, on a vertical or use case because otherwise I know exactly how that engineering project goes where it's like, oh, I <laughs> yeah. can build a better Unreal editor. Right? Yeah. And, then, <laughs> and then you start just adding features like, oh, shit, I got to build this, got to build yeah. that. Where am I going to put this? And then you just end up with like, yeah. a different but a different editor, but it has maybe a lot of the same you know, weaknesses. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Every time someone says, there's too many standards for this thing, there should be one unifying standard. What happens <laughs> yeah. is there is now, you know, instead of 12 standards, one. there's 13 yeah. standards. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Just plus one. Increment. <laughs> Increment. Um, you, you guys got me thinking as well. Uh, I was talking to someone who's in Unity more these days than I am, of course. And they're saying, well, something I really like about the package manager in Unity, which is a lot like the plugins uh, system in Unreal, is they're like most of the packages you'll find now, they, there's like a little sample button and you can click the sample button and kind of open up almost like a little sample project that uses that package. And I thought, oh, that's really great. If only Unreal had that. And then I thought, you know what? Unreal does have a lot of that. Like in a lot of plugins, if you enable them, you yeah. can go in and if there's a content folder in that plugin, there usually are some like blueprints or even a couple maps that are <coughs> demonstrating how to use that plugin. And I feel like 99% of people never find those because, you know, they're buried a little bit. And just by the fact that Unity is putting them a little bit more front and center, like you enabled this plugin. Would you like to open the sample content for it is kind of a nice UX move. Yeah, I, I mean, whatever, do they still maintain the um, the the sample content uh, like the 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 big Unreal Engine like sample content. Um, yeah, the content examples that content. Uh, that's still amazing. I, I pop into that at least once every month or two because there's and they're they're constantly updating it with new things. So I was in there over the weekend looking at all the uh, chaos physics examples. Uh, yeah. Because yeah, they do a great job keeping that updated. Yeah, yeah they got some good stuff in here. It's it must be huge now, right? Like I remember when it was just a few hallways on like yeah animation physics uh blueprints you know it was just like yeah it, that must be exploding yeah. right now yeah there's like five maps all dedicated to just different kinds of animation and like here's retargeting and here's like you know different kinds of mocap techniques and uh yeah there's a ton of stuff there it's really really great so anyone who's trying to get acquainted with a new unreal engine feature if you're like oh i've never really played with niagara i want to understand more about how niagara works and how it's different from cascade particles like yeah. open up the niagara hallway and just walk yeah. down it and read the little plaques and click on some of the interactable things and it's a really nice visual way to get started learning these things and then you know get out of runtime mode and like open up some of those blueprints and you know understand how some of those things are constructed it's really helpful that's that's how i learn most of like uh what i know about things like niagara in particular because like you look at one of those systems and yeah that you can find lots of youtube tutorials and stuff like that but i always found it super useful to like go one step at a time in that hallway Try and replicate it by just opening up those, you know, uh, uh, particle systems, trying to replicate it myself and going to the, ne the next one. Like you would be amazed how proficient you can get in any tool in Unreal just by doing that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to. 100%. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to see if there's a way to search the. Oh, yeah, you can filter here, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm looking at the old one. But yeah, it's pretty. <laughs> it is pretty nice. Yeah, I could probably like look for the Niagara. I should probably do it. This is a good. Uh, I can't spell Niagara, apparently. Niagara um, is, I, I haven't touched it in a little bit, so I'm sure it's changed a, a bit, but it's really amazing. And, and they keep adding more and more for fluid simulation and for everything else. I, I 
it's really pretty amazing uh, what you can do inside Niagara. I think you we saw a few new features on the 5.3. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially if there's like a good, I mean, I, I do think like the demo examples are like pretty key. Like that's how, that's definitely uh, um, how I learned a bunch of stuff too. And um, also I would say like one of the other things that's been super useful for getting over like weird Unreal Engine stuff is like, is YouTube obviously like YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, um, shout out to uh, uh, JS Films. Because um, oh, yeah. like yeah, that's yeah. how I learned like a bunch of stuff with Unreal. I was like, oh, how do I, how do I do like import a track camera into Unreal and like you know mess around? And it was like, you know, uh, watch his YouTube videos. And he like, here, I'll, I'll pull up his uh, his page because it's yeah, awesome. Yeah, Jay's great. Um, yeah, we, um, we actually keep looking for an excuse to get him on the podcast because he's yeah. a, a really wonderful teacher for everyone. Yeah, he's, he's got an amazing channel, and I think, uh, and obviously like unofficial. Uh, actually, I, I just watched your video recently, Alex, for. Uh, Shout out to this this exact podcast that we're on right now because uh, <laughs> uh, about um, the mapping. Um, it was like, oh yeah, I was I was doing the same thing with, um, or I was trying to map uh, my AR kit to my face to the face, but then animate the body, and then I was trying to use like the latest uh, MetaHuman animator and then not have it be all all weird. But um, oh, sure. Yeah. But this, but I feel like the this is the one way I found to kind of counteract the the editor is just a nightmare to work with because you can just be like, okay, what do they do exactly in the UI? And I'll just, mm -hmm. I can just do that. And then I won't forget the steps. Um, so that's like one, at least for, for myself, it's been super helpful just to be like, okay, I can just look at the screencast and just see exactly all the little, the little UI tweaks. Yeah. And for anything that hasn't changed too much, uh, especially in the last couple of versions of Unreal, um, Vikas and I have already brought it up a couple times in this podcast, but things like ChatGPT and Bard, really incredible tools that are getting better every day. So to step through a, an example very briefly, uh, last week I decided that I really wanted to have tilt brush controls inside Unreal. And for anyone who doesn't know what tilt brush is, it was a project that was acquired by Google and then like open sourced for like drawing in right. VR. Uh, but forget about the drawing part. It had this really cool, intuitive way of navigating the world. You kind of squeeze your hands together to scale the world up and pull them apart to scale it down. And you uh, grab basically the air to kind of move yourself around. And you can grab the air in two directions to rotate. And I thought, I've never seen that in Unreal. Uh, Tilt Brush was made in Unity. And I wanted to very quickly just create that. So I just started talking to ChatGPT and it knew what Tilt Brush was and then knew the basic controls. And at first it started to kind of explain, you know, well, you'd want to use this node and this node and this node. And then I started to say things like, well, could you diagram that for me? And I'd be like, yeah, sure. And it would do like a little ASCII diagram. And then I started <laughs> to challenge it and say things like, well, you know, I'm a really visual learner and the ASCII diagram is like vertical and it's not quite how the actual node flow is. And I said like, do you think this, you could do something I could paste into Unreal? And it's like, oh, I don't feel comfortable doing that and then I nudged it a little bit more and I was like well what about Blueprint UE which is a website where you can paste Blueprint code and it was like oh sure I can do Blueprint UE as though that's any different from pasting into the Unreal event graph and it started to construct code that actually would paste that huh. raw Blueprint code into Blueprint UE. Mind you, a lot of it was broken, but once I kind of got it to like, well, like give me like the four nodes 
in the order that I really need them to make this work to give me kind of like a skeleton of what I need to do, it would give me that. And that was actually really helpful. So I could kind of paste that in. And then I started to have some fun being like, well, forget about Blueprint UE. Like, can you just diagram this out for me? And then it starts to create yeah. like these bubble charts. It uses Python to actually generate an image. Uh, and this is all, by the way, using ChatGPT4 with the code interpreter code. Yeah, like, yeah. mode or module. But I couldn't believe like how quickly I was able to add in all these controls that probably would have taken me like two or three times longer if I didn't just have this companion, this this rubber duck I could be like bouncing ideas off of. And uh, and you know, and every time there's a problem, every time I'm like, oh, you know, I thought it was gonna do this, it's actually doing this. And it's like, here's three reasons it's probably not yeah. behaving the way you want. And lastly, too, here's something really great too with Code Interpreter. You can take a screenshot of your blueprint or something happening in Unreal and then say, hey, something's going wrong. Something is going wrong. Here's what my code looks like. And it will interpret a screenshot of your blueprint code and say, oh, it looks like you attached this node here when it should have been attached <laughs> here. Like that's amazing to me that it can actually oh, yeah. like yeah. visually troubleshoot, a vi you know, node-based graphs. Uh, and it's it, And just in like the three days over the time that I was doing this, it felt like it got better over those three days. And I don't know if that was just from conversations with me or from like it, the knowledge it was taking in from around the world with anyone else trying to make it work with blueprints. But um, boy, what an incredible tool. Yeah, I'm gonna try, uh, I'm just gonna try some random thing here. Let's see. Yeah. Or if you guys have any ideas. So yeah, can you describe the steps to creating a geometry <laughs> shader in Unreal 5.2 to create a curved <laughs> plane? Uh, and let's see here. Uh, okay, let's see what it says. Okay, so uh, yeah, your <laughs> geometry. Sh sh uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if you just did a vertex shader, I'm sure it would do it. That's true. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, which I think that's that's basically what it's doing. I think here, right? Uh, uh, so geometry um, shading is a slightly different different pipeline. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. That's that's kind of pre pipeline. pre vertex shader. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. But I guess I think it correctly c corrected my language and said, oh, let's do a vertex shader, I believe. Hmm, Looks like. Yeah. I guess I'll have to look and see my if My screen's this is right. a little bit far away. What kind of code did I, you generate? You know, this, so this is HLSL. So if you went into uh, materials and right click and did a custom node, yeah. you'd yeah. probably be able to. You could probably like make this, yeah. yeah. It's a function. So it probably, I'm not sure, sure if it would work because those custom shares expect. Um, like your inputs and outputs to be specific names. Um, but it, in theory, in theory, you could use this kind of thing. Yeah, and I think That's I cool. think Alex's point about like, yeah, I think the yeah, the code interpreter is probably the way to go too. And it, it's and it might even be like the way maybe the right way to sort of smooth over the editor interfaces. You just have like something like ChatGPT plus code interpreter kind of like running natively inside Unreal. And you can yeah, just I like, think we're going to see that all over the place. Yeah. 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 We'll see those plugins. Yeah. My hope is that it, it does actually, you know, like we can agree on some standard of how applications should present this kind of feedback because, yeah, you know, right now Very it's nice. like everyone handles it a little differently. Um, we're not at a point where like there's the global search box for all advice everywhere. Like I'm sure Google <laughs> yeah. would love that, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> Google would love it if there was like a Google search box in every application, but that's yeah. not realistic. So, like, what what kind of standards can there be? I mean, we've already spoken on this podcast extensively about 
uh, GitHub Copilot and oh, yeah. all these other yeah. alternatives. But GitHub Copilot, I use absolutely every day. Like, yeah. It saves yeah, me so much time all the time. For anyone who doesn't know what GitHub Copilot is, give a little summary of it. Yeah. Um, so GitHub Copilot is a an extension that you can use inside of VS Code. So for the non-programmers out there, VS Code is uh, what we call an ID, an interactive development environment. Um, and it's a really nice one that was designed by Microsoft. Um, and uh, GitHub Copilot is an extension that as you're working in code, will actively give you suggestion, AI-driven you know, suggestions. And they're pretty good, uh, if not really good, actually. Um, and so particularly, you know, if you're writing a function um, that like you're, sh you're sure like a million people have written, you know, like, yeah. please write me a function that like writes a request, like a Git request that does X, Y, Z, blah, 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 you know, like it will get that probably 99 times out of 100. And then if you're doing more complex function functionality, if you just leave it comments, for example, in a function, uh, you try to guide it a little bit, you can get surprisingly far and save yourself a ton of time, for example, going and looking at API documentation, like all the time nowadays, instead of trying to go find documentation on every function and the parameters, and everything like that, I'll just do a comment like does XYZ with this plugin yeah. <laughs> and it will just pull it up and yeah. it's right most of the time. So, um, yeah, can't say enough about GitHub Copilot. It's a great, great tool. There's lots of alternatives out there as well for other IDs, but that's the one that I, I've used the most. Cool. Yeah, I, I think like- I, I believe it does pretty good suggestions for Blueprint um, code as well. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, like custom Blueprints uh, in C++, um, mm -hmm. Blueprint nodes, I should say. So like if yeah. you're a developer working in like any of the C++ interfaces in Unreal, um, you know, the, the old standard used to be Visual Assist um, and Visual Assist is still good for, for some folks. Um, it provides a lot of suggestions specific to engine libraries and stuff like that. But GitHub Copilot does just as well, um, in my opinion, yeah. at least. Vikasa, have you used it at, at all? Uh, I, I mean, I, I used it. Uh... I would say I ended up using I did I did use it uh, relatively often, and then I kind of switched over to uh, ChatGPT. It seemed to get uh, it seemed to do better for a lot of uh, code specific stuff. Um, like it seemed to get it seemed to get better sort of answers. Um, like I found GitHub Copilot was useful for like kind of auto completing in a lot of cases, but the the sort of like the thing where I'd have to go look up the documentation for something. It was easier to kind of just paste into into ChatGPT, but but I'd say like either the one that um, you know one thing that would be cool, especially for Unreal Engine and developing on the C plus plus side of it is like I think none of these uh, tools. Maybe there's I think there's a thing called Cursor. There's a company called Cursor Cursor that's starting to do this. But one thing that'd be amazing is if somebody uh, actually embedded the whole source code of Unreal Engine because. I think right now with GitHub Copilot um, and, and with ChatGPT, it only knows like whatever, it knows like kind of the general, you know, it has, it's trained up on a bunch of code, but, and it knows like a bunch of general code, but then it only knows the local context of like what you're giving it. Um, yeah. And, but if you could like ask like a general question about like Unreal Engine and be like, hey, where can I, 
if I'm building a plugin, where can I hook into to like get the render buffer before whatever's applied or something like that? Um, I'm actually curious. Yeah, I'll also look around. I'm, now I'm actually curious if anyone's actually tried that because that that would probably be super super useful because it's a very well, I, a relatively I complex the, code base. Yeah, I think the future is definitely being able to train these tools on your own code base. Yeah. Um, and to that extent, like this would be part of it. I should also mention though that there is a new Copilot chat feature too. Oh, and, and it's worth mentioning that you know these are both Microsoft. You know, so GitHub Copilot is a Microsoft product. They're also major investors in OpenAI. Um, they have a internal access to the same models. So, like GitHub Copilot, you can think of as just a a specifically tuned or, or fine tuned. A model for the, the same un, or, or fine-tuned um, representation of like one of the the segments of something like GPT-4. True, uh, true. This came out recently that GPT-4 is a uh, was called a um, a mixed expert model, which means that essentially they took this model GPT-4, they fine-tuned it in a bunch of different domains. One of them is code. One of them might be like medical or you know something like that, right? And yeah. essentially, they have an intelligent system, or usually, it's actually another model that classifies the requests into these mixed experts um, to get you the best possible result. So, in theory, like Copilot would be a mixed, like one of those mixed ex expert models specifically trained on code. Um, but the prompting is very different. Um, and that's really the biggest difference between something like this and, and ChatGPT is that ChatGPT has like a language context that, you know, uh, uh, shifts, whereas Copilot is gathering information from everything inside of your workspace usually. Oh, really? Um, okay. That I didn't realize. Yeah. That's, that's actually pretty cool. So yeah, maybe I should try it again. Maybe they've improved it since I did it. But uh, Well, it's, it's yeah. worth mentioning that like VS Code is not usually where you work on yeah right true, uh, true. so i think it does technically supported it's usually uh, visual studio and i'm not sure what capabilities copilot has in visual studio or, or if that's a focus yeah. at the moment actually on a on a different topic that i'm curious about from from you guys um you know one of the things that uh you know i was chatting with a uh a youtuber that's like you know built a pretty awesome like virtual production pipeline um and um you know, he's built it around uh, Blender. And part of, you know, one of the things that he mentioned was it was really hard for him to, you know, uh, him and I think he's got a 3D person on staff. They explored a bunch of, you know, ways to try to use Unreal instead. Um, and they just had a big challenge in trying to match the output quality from Blender to what they were getting with Unreal. And I'm curious what you guys have found with like, um, obviously there's like the, the path tracer now and there's like some of the historical stuff. Like what have you, what have you found or seen, um, or like what difficulties have you faced if you're, if you've tried to like push the envelope with like, like realistic renders essentially. First, I want to give Jacob a chance to give his usual rant about path tracing. No, I, <laughs> we, we can skip it. We can skip it. I, I, I don't like the path tracer. I, you know, whatever. I, this is a historic, um, canonical feature of this podcast where I go and, and, and rant on the path <laughs> tracer because I feel like it's the antithesis of everything we've worked for. But uh, yeah, uh, that's pretty much it. That's the rant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, what I it, it's been interesting, especially to follow someone like uh, JS Films again, who has been doing all these really interesting tests with like 14 hours of path tracing for you know this 30 second uh, Unreal Engine film and all that, and then comparing that to the two minute long. Uh, Lumen version, and then of course the the next thing would be like, well, how about um, the real time version as well of Lumen? And what yeah. I'm finding is that the the differences between let's say all three of those uh, are getting less and less and less. Uh, in particular, right now, path tracing versus Lumen with all the settings turned up really high. Um, very, very hard to notice the difference, even at 4K. There's like a few things where, you know, little reflections off eyelashes or something like that, where if you're looking super closely, you'll see that like, oh yeah, there, there's something else going on there with path tracing. But um, I think we are very quickly coming to a point where there's not going to be a lot of need for that. And it's funny too, because when people talk about things like photorealism, it's such a relative term because it's like, well, photorealism in the sense of how physics behave in the real world or photorealistic, like someone just looks at it and it passes the, the sniff test. It just seems like, yeah, that looks real. Um, because sometimes when you're making something photorealistic, you put three different suns in your scene, three different directional lights, because that's just going to create like the right effect for what you're going for. So there's right, right. still kind of a whole artistic side to it, but kind of to your point, because like, yeah, like I am finding more and more that when I'm trying to make something look photo real, um, in Unreal Engine 4.27, which I'm still spending a lot of time in, it's usually baked lighting, uh, yeah. for global illumination plus ray traced reflections. That's kind of the magic combo there, even in VR, if we've got powerful enough hardware. And then in Unreal Engine 5, whatever, um, Lumen and Nanite uh, cranked up high enough, like that's kind of it, unless it's a very tight interior scene. Lumen GI in real time, I find, is still pretty noisy. And it works okay if it's like, well, we're in a pool and there's like weird caustic stuff happening on the walls. Like you can kind of get away with the Lumen noise feeling like import in intentional in that respect. But um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, but I think if you're going to render something out, if you're like, I'm making a short film in Unreal Engine, like you yeah. can get 99% of the way there just with the out of the box Lumen Nanite stuff and maybe cranking some of your Lumen settings up a little bit higher using CVARs or even just going in your post-process volume. It's worth yeah. cons uh, considering like um, where things are headed in, in general with with real time, right? Like Lumen and Nanite, eh, I'm not sure why I said that's so weird. Lumen and Lumen Nanite, Nanite. Uh, are going that's to be example. huge <laughs> for a, a, a wide swath of games it's going to be great uh it's going to be very scalable for hardware right like that was one of the original intentions is that like making sure that your game can run on lower end and higher end hardware that runs on mobile and that it runs in all these other places right but if you look at what's going on in like the very high end um which is usually uh also means you have to have a really big gpu um yeah and mostly from nvidia because what they're doing <laughs> yeah. is ray tracing yeah, has been very, um, you know, is very relevant to this. Um, but if you look at, for example, Cyberpunk, we talked about this a while back, where Cyberpunk re released this um, like ray tracing overdrive mode, where they modified their engine to do like essentially similar to what you'll see in like uh, uh, um, Nvidia's Omniverse demos, mm -hmm. where 
they're doing a ton of RT acceleration to provide global illumination and reflection and, and near path trace results. And it's mostly driven with denoising, right? Like most real-time ray tracing, you just send a scatter of random rays into the scene. You accelerate that as much as you can, and then you denoise it. Like that's the big process here. And if you look at like what NVIDIA is still pushing on, like DLSS, that's getting better and better, right? Yeah, um, I believe they're releasing an extension or DLC for Cyberpunk. Um, and that was one of the big, that's going to be one of the big releases for DLSS 3.5, right? But consider yeah. this, that CD Projekt Red, who are the people who make Cyberpunk, hmm. have committed to switching to Unreal, right? They sure have. <laughs> so think to yourself, right? Like, okay, CD Projekt Red is just one company inside this ecosystem. Yeah. They have a visual bar that they're setting with their title now. Like, why would they move to the Unreal platform if they weren't expecting to set the same visual bar on the high end? Right. Yeah. I'm sure, NVIDIA is going, like, NVIDIA has their own versions of the engine, and a lot of those features don't make it into the main branch for, you know, vendor neutrality, whatever. Um, yeah. But fundamentally, like, if we're looking at where, the, like, where the gap is slimming, like it's, it's obviously happening on the high end, um, but it might not be happening as much in Unreal right now, but it, it will be like it, there's every sign that that's, that's going to, to get there to the point where like Nanite is going to be critical in playing in playing a role in, in the overall resolution of objects and the fidelity of the worlds, but things like neural rendering, you know, denoising, are going to be huge in terms of pushing this next bar in real time, like realistic rendering. Um, and that's coming very soon. Like that, that's, we're really only like a, a generation away from that. Yeah. Um, in my opinion, at least. Yeah. That's I think a great explainer video. Go ahead, Vikas. Oh, and I was just going to say, yeah. And I think, I think, you know, at least the, you know, one of the ways we're thinking about it at Light Twist is that there's this, I think there's there's obviously tons and tons of advantages in just having the real time feedback. Like you can actually like kind of run through and like you know you you know roughly what things are going to look like or more more or less almost exactly. Um, and I wonder if we get to a place where, at least in some cases, you kind of have like both the both a real time preview of like whatever you're doing, and then have the ability to kind of go back and just press a button and it sort of re renders. Like that, that's something that we're looking into is like. Um, and preparing for is like, can we, you know, do what we're doing here, but then like, you know, after this is, uh, after we're done recording you, it just goes back and does like, okay, cool. I've locally recorded your audio, your video. We'll just feed that back in and we'll re-render it out with like, maybe we're not going to use 78 hours. That would, uh, that would, uh, cost us a lot of money, but, uh, the 21 yeah. minute render is, is very possible, you know? Um, I, and so there are a lot of folks yeah. Yeah, who, who yeah. are looking at that. Um, yeah, I just, from my perspective, believe we will get to a point sooner than people expect where like you don't need to worry about offline rendering other yeah, than you if you have yeah. a specific pipeline that needs to, like if you have a pipeline that's going to utilize additional tools or, you know, yeah. you're, you're doing things like compositing or multi-stage, you know, uh, rendering, like there's still plenty of reasons you might need offline yeah, yeah. rendering. I don't think it's going away. But for use cases where you're like, oh well, we'll utilize real time to get an okay fidelity now, but we'll yeah, we'll, we'll get a better output later. Like I, I, I don't think we're going to be seeing that for much longer, to be honest. 
Yeah, especially. Yeah. I mean, I guess, oh, good out. I was going to say, even in Unreal Engine, we're starting to see more of that happening with things like MetaHuman Animator and the uh, the ML Deformer stuff, where it's like, yeah, you're getting kind of one pass at this, and then you send it up to the cloud and get, then get this incredible result that uh, is pumped through a neural network and does all this other stuff. Yeah, there's a little bit of, yeah, the yeah the MetaHuman Animator case is a really interesting one, too, because, yeah, it's it's the fidelity is so much better after that processing. But, yeah, I think that you could... Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see if it's yeah, if, like what that gap looks like over time. As long as the top end matches, yeah, it's like if that if the gap in the real time versus offline renders is like, you know, less and less perceptible over time. And, and another thing that's interesting too, like we we found this from at least one of our customers is like they're like, look, most because we because I was all, you know at least for, my, for myself I'm always like pretty critical about quality of various things, and I'm like okay. What do you guys need help on? Can we like improve the render quality? Like, is the segmentation good enough? And they're like, they're like, no, it's actually as long as it's like reliable and running, like it's it's good. Like, because they're like, oh, people are watching it on phone screens anyway. It's not like they're watching it on, you know, a huge theater, you know, <laughs> experience. And so they're like, it actually is like those differences are even like less evident at a at a phone screen. Even though phone screens have gotten better, you know, like it'd be interesting to see like this this thing from uh, JS Films like. Yeah, with like Lumen versus path tracing, and like if you're looking at a phone, you're probably like even less likely <laughs> to notice that difference, right? So that yeah. might be another factor that's pushing toward like this. It, it sort of like reduces in some ways. It's reducing the top end of what you could perceive anyway, for for at least for like virtual production kind of stuff, and so or like rendered stuff. And so you might be like, well, there's even less reason to go offline mode because like you don't need that quality. Like you're only going to pump, you know, you're you're only like outputting at this this level. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Cool. I, I think we'll get there, uh, and it, it really won't be that long. Yeah. I I, I had these kind of like I had a series of predictions um, a few years ago um, that I wrote up, and you know, I think at that point I said, okay, well, in, in about five to ten years, like real time, we'll fully catch up on, on these things. Like, yeah. Um, what I did not expect, and and maybe. Uh, a lot of people didn't expect is just is how we would get there right like a lot of people at that point would have still said like this is a a step function with rasterization and yeah we'll throw in this like real-time ray tracing thing but it'll still be rasterization you know and, and now we're getting to a point where and, and of course you know we're in the middle of this like ai boom so there's yeah. gonna be speculation <laughs> there's gonna be speculation all over the place and and we can't let it you know, cloud the ju our judgment, so to speak. But mm -hmm. what is certainly true is that um, more and more functions seem to be saying that, oh, well, maybe we'll move away from, you know, rasterization altogether, um, you know, in the near term. And, and that would be pretty, pretty nuts. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I think people don't realize, like, how much of VFX and, you know, real time or everything else is built around vertices and you know yeah. polygons and stuff that really doesn't matter in in the framework of like neural rendering or true uh, you know if you look at like any like uh, ai paper on for example generating 3d objects from language it will show it as like a, 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 a neural render yeah a, a neural radiance feel essentially be voxels right like it will just be logical yeah. space um 
Like there, there's just very little impetus for polygons when you're not doing rasterization. Uh, VFX okay. uses curves and uses these other definitions that, um, you know, real time doesn't for that reason. Yeah, I wonder that that'll be an interesting, you know, that'd be an interesting because uh, because I've I've seen um, I could see a future also, and maybe it's a intermediate future until the, you know, let's say let's say in the five five year horizon, because there are some new techniques now. If you if you guys have seen the whole um, Gaussian splatting paper that came out recently, that's like it's kind of closer to it's it's using something like neural rendering, but uh, it's actually use it's taking advantage of rasterization. So it's kind of like, hey, let's instead of trying to uh, train up this like effectively like a ray tracer in a neural network, which is sort of the the uh, like nerf nerf type neural rendering, it's like let's train up uh, let's let's actually create uh, actual geometry in the scene that kind of uh, looks good from all these different angles, and so, um, and that has a lot of advantages, be partly because our pipe, like, you know, it's like, what, you know, uh, we can render triangles all day in real time, like all these different systems are built, like, like you said, for that. Um, and it has some, it has some advantages in the sense that you can, like, we have the ability to not just like render that, but then composite it and relight it and all this stuff. And so, yeah, I could also see another, like another path that might happen is we just get more, we might get some more explicit systems like this where it's like you're using deep learning but you're recovering like you're basically almost recovering like a geometric uh, geometric version of the world with like proper materials and like all this and it's like oh like we actually got the exact brdf on this desk now and we got the translucency on this glass just right and the structure of it because like we're not using like a you know like a slam sort of 3d reconstruction yeah. type approach or photogrammetry it's like this like new like hey what it needs to look like this from this angle um kind of thing so i, I think it's uh, just gonna yeah. end up being all contextual right like yeah the 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 whole um physically based rendering model is all designed to it is not technically really designed around the physics of uh, of materials i mean some of it definitely is yeah but it's how those materials or, or how light interacts with our eye and those materials, right? It's, it's like, there are many things inside of rendering that are used to compensate, not really for the physics of it, but like how human, the human eye works and how we're, you know, used to seeing things in context, like a big one being ambient occlusion, which yeah. is not a real effect, but <laughs> it's something we have to use in rendering, right? Um, other examples like uh, in translucency, um, refraction, you know, in PBR is most of the time used to like arbitrarily bend light because we're not tracing rays and stuff like that. Right. Like, but in a contextual scenario where you know, what's what that thing is, right. Like, you know, yeah. that a, an ice cube is an ice cube. And that means something because you've looked through the entire human experience and database yeah. of photographs and, and videos of ice cubes, like that means a, a, a different thing, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I get the feeling it's just all going to be contextual and, and driven by our experience. And um, there's yeah. going to be, yeah, we, we've gone, we've gone down a rabbit hole here, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting one. Maybe, maybe a different, uh, maybe, maybe I'll have you guys on uh, the, <laughs> we're going to restart the Light Twist show at some point. So we'll okay. have you guys on there. We can, we can uh, nerd out about this topic too. Um, no, it's awesome. 
Well, I cool. think just about there. Do you have any shout outs this week, Alex? I, I wish I did. No, I didn't have a chance to go um, through my, my Twitter likes. Uh, there are some really cool people doing cool things, but we'll save them for next time. Sounds good to me. Awesome. All right. Well, if we're just about wrapped up here, thanks, guys, for listening. A bit of a shorter episode this week. Not, though, maybe. I, I'm not sure. Usually, we get about an hour 20. I think we're about an hour in. So, you know what? Uh, you can have those 20 minutes back if you were planning. <laughs> For the podcast. record, Jacob, I think every time you've made a prediction on the show of how long the episode's been, you've been at least 20 minutes off. Oh, really? Either direction. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's okay. Well, I, I like I like hearing you guess because I, I think this one's about an hour. I mean, I'm going to be wrong now, too, but I think we're about an hour 15, an hour 20 here. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Well, either way, thank you guys for, for listening and watching. Uh, make sure you like comment subscribe favorite rate whatever it is wherever you're you're watching or listening we really appreciate it and we'll see you in the next episode yeah thanks everyone and let us know if you'll be at unreal fest we'd love to see you yeah